But the most important post-operative thing that you can do is for us to be available. Pretty much any patient will get reviewed by the nurse within 24 hours and by one of us, if not within 24 hours, then within 48 hours. So those things are way more important than whether you get the wound wet, the type of dressing. You know, they're, they're small print, I think, in terms of increasing your risk. Hey, Refam. My name's Kate and welcome back to Keeping It Real the podcast that knows there's nothing sexier than safety. Today, Richard and Kim join me to chat about all the different ways we minimize risk in surgery, both as surgeons and patients. We run through the best way for you to prepare for a safe surgery, as well as debunk common misconceptions that may actually be increasing your risks. If you enjoy this episode, please give us five stars wherever you're listening and let us know what topics you'd like us to cover next. Enjoy. Um, today we're chatting about preventing complications. Um, I don't think we need to go into every single complication that can arise. You guys do that in your consults. We have every single one listed on our website if you want to do some light reading. Um, so I don't think that necessarily be very helpful, but in terms of just in a general sense um, what we do here to minimise risk and also like what patients can do on their end. I think arguably one of the biggest steps beforehand is in the preparation. What do you guys do as surgeons to minimise risk before you even walk into the operating theatre? The most obvious thing is to make sure that you're well trained in the procedure that that you're doing. So Kim and I both uh, have done plastic surgery training. Um, We're experienced in the procedures that that we, we do. Um, we have a full consultation process, so we understand exactly what a patient is trying to achieve. Uh, and then from a location point of view, we work in accredited hospitals. Um, they're all excellent facilities with great staff. We like to, one thing that we both feel really helps with patient safety is working with the same team. So we have a, a group of anesthetists that we work with. Uh, and so they're familiar with the surgeries that we do and managing our patients. We also like to have regular nursing staff who can also who also are familiar with our work. We always have an assistant. We've got a very small pool of anesthetists, uh, assistants who are all excellent as well. So all of those things contribute to uh, making the operation safer for patients and, and just r- minimising the chance of something going wrong. In terms of things that... We, we probably each do something like different like in terms of look ourselves and how we prepare for a day in surgery. For me, I obviously patient selection is already done and so the operating list is made and so we know who's going to be on the next day. So the day before, I always print off of the operating list. I go through um, the patients that are going to be on my list for the next day. Um, I read all my notes and any other notes that have been made, any other um, correspondence that the nurse or the patients had with the rooms and then have a look at their photos. And then I've got to I make just jot down some notes and I've got a clear idea in my mind of exactly what the plan for each individual patient is. And then on the day, um, I usually exercise in the morning. So that's what uh, just what works for me. And so I get up early, I exercise, um, have a decent breakfast and always a coffee, usually too, um, before arriving at the operating theatre and then see, talk to the team in theatre, make sure that all the equipment for the day and particularly breast implants, it's always a bit of the bane of our existence is making sure that the hospital has 
the implants are always in the hospital, but they need to be in the operating room. So I've sighted them before those patients um, that need them and then go and see the first patient and chat with them, make sure they don't have any extra questions and then do the drawing. Yeah, I think that's interesting that both of you have underlined that routine and like reducing any superfluous like noise or distraction yeah. is the easiest way to. This maybe doesn't sound right, but you know you should be able to do the operations on autopilot. All right, so if you're really thinking within an operation, like specifically about you know how you do X, Y, Z, well, you're probably not doing the right operation that you're you're trained for. So. For both of us, we made a decision seven or eight years ago to limit our practices uh, around just a small number of procedures. Uh, and so you just become experts at them. It's like it's the 10,000-hour rule. And also if, you're, if you are working with unfamiliar people and unfamiliar environments, you're stressing about other people's jobs, not yeah. just your own. So if everyone else is – and for patients that have already had surgery with us, they – as they come into the operating room and if it's their first time they often comment like god there's a lot of people here and yeah it's every single person has a role to play that makes it safer and our they all contribute in a different way to to the flow of how everything works essentially yeah. and then all the usual stuff like good music <laughs> Yeah, Banter. very important, very, very important. important. Chatting about the footy. Well, you know what, like it, I'm being facetious obviously, uh, but it's actually, it, it's actually a very deliberate strategy to maintain a relaxed atmosphere in the operating theatre. Like what you don't want is a very stressed atmosphere where people are, are afraid to voice opinions or highlight something that they're worried about. So you do want to you do want to have a group of people who you work with regularly who understand you, who feel comfortable saying, hang on, have you thought about – like because stuff does happen in an operation. Um, yeah. So it, it's important to create an environment where everyone feels welcome and part of the team. It's not just so that we're, we're listening to music we want to or talking. Um, it's very deliberate. Yeah, you're building like rapport and trust. Correct. Mm. I occasionally yeah, like, have patients yeah. who request. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm totally don't mind. And, and, and then we sometimes. put it on just as they're going to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, I love Taylor Swift. Jokes. Yeah, 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 Jokes. Yeah. <laughs> and what can patients do to minimise risk? I mean, it all really starts, you know, in patient selection. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the two pe- – patients are always asking – you know, you know, what can I do to reduce my risk? And, you know, they're always saying, you know, should I have this vitamin, that vitamin, fish oil, whatever, all this stuff that has no um, evidence, but they're easy to do. And the, the two most basic things that you can do, which scientifically proven, absolutely guaranteed to reduce the risk, are achieve your target weight prior to surgery um, and, you know, that's a, a, going to be a BMI as close to normal as possible, certainly below 30, uh, and stop smoking. Make sure you're not smoking, not vaping, not near people who are smoking or vaping. Uh, don't even go into a shop that sells cigarettes. Besides being the right weight as a patient, is there anything else um, they can do to dramatically uh, minimise their risk coming before they've even stepped foot into the theatre? 
we always take a full medical history and so if patients have underlying problems that may be partially treated or not well treated um, and the commonest things in our patient population may be like blood pressure, thyroid issues um, and psychological things as well. So I think if someone's got a good rapport with their GP and they've been seeing them regularly and have had, you know, just making sure their general health is fine. Um, and certainly as people get a bit older or if they've got long-term medical conditions that they are absolutely maintained at the um, optimum level. So we've we've all had um, patients like with rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes, They're less common with the procedures that we do, but also a couple of patients more recently with Crohn's disease. So oh, yeah. um, that's a chronic lifelong um, and they're on medication for lifelong. And so making sure that those um, underlying illnesses are optimised and that they're at their best health that they possibly can be. So if there's anything going on with those, then that needs to be completely sorted um, before we would operate on them. Are there any medical conditions I guess like anything that's in a medical history that would kind of automatically preclude somebody from surgery with us or things that raise red flags sort of yes sort of no I mean there are but they're just generally not in our patient population so I mean occasionally I mean I can't remember exactly but we've had patients who've who've made inquiries and I think you know I think the last one was I think someone had had multiple organ transplants and bowel resections to this that and the other and it was just you know it was just a bridge too far that mm. you know it made it way way too complicated there's a vast majority of conditions that we can deal with and we work with anesthetists or, or other specialists to maximize things i would say the most common condition that we need to manage would be uh, problems with clotting or bleeding. So patients have inherited conditions that either make them clot too much, so at risk for DVT, or that make them bleed too much. And so we need to work with usually a haematologist around that to optimise, get that balance right, so that they're not at high risk of clotting and they're not at high risk of bleeding. How do people find out that they have those conditions? Well, sometimes they don't know. You're right. Sometimes they don't know and then someone bleeds excessively or they get a, a DVT that you're not expecting and then that's the trigger and they get some investigations and then it gets found out. But generally there's sometimes a family history where someone, a number of people in the family have had uh, DVTs mm -hmm. um, and uh, so they kind of get informed to do testing in the family mm -hmm. so they come and they know. The uh, other time is pregnancy <clears throat> related so women that – like I've had a couple of people come in and they say, oh, I had massive amount of bleeding after three births. And I was like, did anyone ever investigate <laughs> why like, oh, that may man, have been the way? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so I, patients that have been investigated and if it, they don't have any specific problem, then it's like, okay, well, that was just bad luck for you. But if someone hasn't had previous investigation and they've had that sort of a history, I definitely send them to a hematologist and say, yeah, okay. look, check for any bleeding disorder because because sometimes you can tell like the second you put the needle in to put some local anesthetic in at the start of the surgery mm. and it's like you can just tell when oh, the patient's going to be a little bit more bleedy um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know they've had tests and they're all fine but there there's certainly a spectrum of 
normal blood test results that people mm. tend to bleed and bruise more. Yeah, I mean, other things that probably not as significant as the smoking and weight, we get patients to have, have a wash with an antiseptic soap prior to surgery mm-hmm. to, to sort of decrease any bacterial load. We all carry, well, I don't, but other people <laughs> carry bacteria, you know, under their armpits, yeah, you know, yeah. groin. The man that was at a sniffing competition all weekend, he says. <laughs> As for the dog, <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, some people want to make dramatic changes to their diet and take tablets, prior vitamins, things like that prior to surgery. Don't. Just yeah. have your normal diet, uh, a healthy, uh, well-balanced diet in Australia is going to be more than sufficient for healing for this type of surgery. And don't add any extra herbal medications, vitamins, etc. that haven't been prescribed because there's a number of those that can be blood thinning. Especially if the they G's start with we G. Heard. G. <laughs> oh, look at you. That's what made me think we'd already done G. this because I was like, wait, the G's. The mm. G's. The G's. And then I was like, and then I was Think going through all the podcasts because I'm like, oh, we definitely talked about that, but apparently it's something else. Um, obviously not all complications can be avoided in preparation alone. Is there anything – like maybe even surgery specific that you guys do to minimise risk once you're in the operating theatre? Yes, certainly. So when we do the surgery, it's very controlled. So it's um, – I hear stories even now still that – Horror stories? Horror stories mm. where, you know, some surgeons get their patients to donate blood, their own blood before a breast reduction procedure even. Because they're likely to what? need a blood transfusion. Like how like, much before? Oh, Two like weeks over, before, because you've got to build it. I was going to say, yeah, 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 imagine them the thing before, yeah. and they're like, I'm feeling quite woozy, and they're like, so oh, you could do with another yeah. half a litre of blood in your system. So they take their own blood out because their expectation is they're going to cause them to bleed a lot. In so which surgery did you say? A breast reduction. So we, it would be extraordinary. I, I actually don't think I've ever transfused a breast reduction patient. Yeah, the surgery's done, controlled. Yeah, it's surgery. There are blood vessels, there's bleeding, but we – cauterize them, we clip things as we go. Um, those kind of people, from what I hear, do a bit of slash and burn and do a lot of cutting, let all the blood out and then sort of try and... and no, as, as you are saying, I mean, like donating blood, like your blood count would go down. So yeah. they go into it a bit more vulnerable. So they, if you've, if you've done it, they would generally use it. Yeah. God, so weird. But yeah. the, the, the problem with that is... Um, there are risks associated with a blood transfusion, even if it's your own blood. So yeah, it sounds right. ridiculous, but the you can still get they still put additives and things in it, so mm. you can get a still get a reaction. Um, mistakes still happen. Mm. Infection mistakes still happen. Like it, like it still happens that the right, wrong blood bag gets put up. Extraordinarily rare, mm. but you know you take both of us. Hundreds of breast reductions a year, no, no transfusion. So multiply that over however many years. You're going to get to a number mm. where if you're transfusing every one of them, then uh, one of them is probably going to have a reaction which wasn't necessary. Yes. <sighs> I had heard of that. I hadn't heard of it for a breast reduction, but nothing yeah, would surprise me. I won't. No. But, but other things in an operation, there's lots of things. So obviously we wash the body the patient with an antiseptic to decrease bacterial load. All patients get a dose of intravenous antibiotics on the table before we make an incision. We always discuss anticoagulation, so decreasing the risk of blood clots. So that'll either be 
um, administering a blood thinner at the start of an operation, always a pillow under the knees to take the tension off the vein behind the knee, always TED stockings to like what you would use if you go on a long haul flight to compress your calf, always calf compression devices so they contract during an operation to again keep the blood flow glowing, going, glowing and going. <laughs> Do we uh, have to BYO socks? No. No. You can take them home though too. They're very uh, special. And then keeping the patient warm. Yeah. So I like a very cold theatre, so they've got to all work overtime because mm. my comfort is paramount. So mm-hmm. keeping me comfortable is very good for patients. I think all about the slogan patient. on the website, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Keep laughs> all about Richard. Yeah. Uh, so we often use a, a mattress, a warming mattress under the patient, and a mattress, a, a warming blanket over the top, which most people who are watching, if they've had surgery with us, would be familiar because you're in that sort of sauna environment um, prior to the surgery. Yeah, right. So there's lots of stuff going on. Like mm. little they, – they're all sort of, you know, 1% of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So – but, you know, it all adds up. And the anaesthetist, their role is – Obviously, keeping the patient breathing and <laughs> keeping Richard comfortable, and, uh, yeah, and keeping Richard comfortable. Uh, so, yeah, th- their whole job is monitoring the patient in terms of blood pressure and heart rate, and making sure their pain relief um, and their oxygenation. They're, so, none of our surgeries would be done awake. Mm-hmm. Um, people, say well, that's, uh, that's <laughs> debatable. I mean. <laughs> No, it's not debatable. <laughs> okay, so complications are always a risk of surgery. Doesn't matter how prepared, prepared, how prepared or skilled you are as a surgeon. Do you guys see some complications more than others? <laughs> other we surgeons never. never we know. We, um, we see other people's complications more than, more than, other than our types own. of complications. Oh. Um, uh, so probably the commonest complication in terms of short term after surgery um, would be very minor wound healing type of things. So we put loads and loads and loads of dissolving stitches. Um, they all go underneath the skin, but occasionally, because they're close to the surface of the skin, so and there's knots, we have to tie them. And so the knots take longer to dissolve. If they get close to the surface, they can pop through. And usually it's like a little pimple. As soon as that knot is popped through, then it heals up. Um, if patients got a little opening, we usually say, come into the rooms, so we'll have a look, because then we can just pick that little bit out so that would be by far and away i think the the um most common complication early days and mm. patients often say i've got an infection but usually it's just that and it's very uncommonly infected um probably infection would be the next most common thing but that's the, we're already starting to get rare um, yeah. so that's pretty uncommon um and then i think sort of medium to longer term would be we start having a little bit of asymmetries or dog ears, which are little extra bits poking out at the end of scars. And then anything else that's like really pretty small print, I think. Probably chuck in seroma. Particularly oh, with body Sorry. lift. Yeah. And particularly with patients, I think, who've lost more than, say, 40 kilos mm. for some reason, they, they it's more prone in them. Yeah, right. And I think um, we both kind of think seroma is not really a complication. It's more a... A consequence and an an annoyance of the of the procedure, and that's why we put drains in those surgeries, Mm. and why some patients end up having to have drains in for for a number of weeks to try Mm. and decrease that recurrence of that seroma. Talking about um, that post op care, well, 
complications in recovery. How important is post-op care in like minimizing the risk of those compounding and maybe getting more dangerous as they go? I mean, I, th- I think if you're choosing the right patients, you're doing the surgery well, uh, you know, that's 99% of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know pe- people carry on about, oh, you know, can't get it wet, you can't do this, you can't do that. I mean, very. I've never seen a patient who had a shower and suddenly the wound fell apart Yeah. or they coughed and sneezed and, mm-hmm. you know, their wound falls apart, their, their muscle repair undoes. So, look, I mean... As providing one is sensible, mm. um, essentially, if you've chosen the right patient, you've done the right operation, you've done it well. You know, everything else is a bit sort of academic. Like you're not mm. you're not making a massive change outside of those major major things. So, a lot of a lot of surgeons would. You know, carry on about the type of dressings, for example. Mm-hmm. There's a current trend at the moment where plastic surgeons are putting like a suction type dressing oh. on a tummy tuck. Mm. It is compl- it's a it's a gimmick. Uh, it's a nonsense. Uh, there there are uh, studies largely sponsored, I believe, by the companies that promote it to say that it's better. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously, like putting a suction on a closed wound, <laughs> like it just doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So we use very, very simple dressings, uh, you know, Mefix, Micropore tape, nothing fancy, um, and we've got very low complication rates, very good scar healing. So, I look, I just, you know, you, you can build it up mm. uh, to make it sound like, you know, I mean, obviously, good post-operative care, but the most important post-operative thing that you can do is for us to be available. Yeah. Right? So patient rings up, they've got any concern, we've always got a nurse available. Um, One of us is almost always available um, in the office. Um, You know, pretty much any patient will get reviewed by at least one of – by the nurse within 24 hours – and by one of us, if not within 24 hours, then within 48 hours. So those things are way more important than whether you go, whether you get the wound wet, the type of dressing, what garment you're, how you sleep, yeah. you're on your side, are you on a pillow, and you're in a recliner. All those things, you know, they're they're small print, I think, in terms of increasing your risk. Can diet and nutrition impact recovery? I think so, um, for sure, and. Patients that are in a, as Richard said, don't do anything crazy beforehand. Like, yeah, get to your stable weight, maintain that, know what food works for you. Um, wound healing does require energy. So um, people after anaesthetic, probably the first 24 hours really often sort of don't really feel like eating so much. And patients can also be a little bit paranoid about, I'm not doing any exercise, I don't want to eat too much, I don't want to put weight on in that recovery period. But it is still really important to be having that high protein and making sure you're getting nutrients and to help with wound healing. Um, but, yeah, like it's it's not rocket science, it's just being sensible. and um, With the vitamin supplement thing, how we say two weeks beforehand, stop taking all – is that the same on the other end? Like, is it like two weeks after surgery or as soon as you're out, you can go straight back on those garlic tablets? I'm usually happy for people to go on their vit- like vitamins, particularly the bariatric surgery patients, mm-hmm. because they actually kind of absorb vitamins quite 
so they can't absorb them normally. Um, and so they're essentially they're prescribed multivitamins. But mm-hmm. um, the general population, you know, leave it for a few days to a week or so, um, especially the particularly blood-thinning <laughs> medications. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing we do to kind of avoid a, a complication is – we advise all of our patients to have Movicol in the lead up to surgery. Oh, yeah. Okay. Movicol helps you go to the toilet. Um, so just to clear your bowels out, because all of the pain medications and, and some of the anaesthetic medications um, bind you up. And so particularly if you had abdominal surgery and it's uncomfortable to strain, um, at least if your bowels were cleared sort of in the lead up to surgery, you're not going to get as constipated, as bloated and feel more comfortable. So not so much a complication but more of a comfort thing. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that patients should look out for, like warning signs in terms of things like infection or whatever um, that they then call you guys for? Is there anything early days they should try and spot in recovery? Anything that's asymmetrical. <laughs> most of our bodies and most of our patients' bodies at the end of surgery are hopefully, is the same. So they've got things to compare well, a against. Change. More, a change, more of a change. Yeah. yeah. So um, anything that's significantly swollen, significantly red, um, and increase in pain that's not responsive or, you know, it's been getting better for a few days and then it gets worse. Um, so that those will be the, the main things. A high temperature, mm. um, nausea, vomiting that had kind of wasn't there early on and then starts. Those are the things to look out for. Yeah. Objective things are helpful. So temperature. Most people have a thermometer at home and they're pretty easy to use these days. Um, pulse. So, again, most people have some sort of active – you should be able to take your own pulse. But oh, I think they have an active <laughs> pulse. It's like I would hope so. <laughs> people would know how to can take their pulse. Yeah. No. I think that I every time I donate blood and then they just – they're like, oh, I just need to take it. And I'm like, that's crazy that we're in 2024 and you still just put your fingers on that. But if not, if you've got an active wear watch, an eye watch or a Garmin, most of them will take your pulse. So they're objective things like some some other things. They're, they're just so more so much more subjective. Um, but, you know, feeling hot and sweaty is kind of, okay, well, it's kind of an indicator you've got a temperature, but if you can take your temperature and it's around 37, 37 and a half, nothing to worry about, something persistent above 38 generally would be a, a pretty good indicator of an infection. That we would is that how small, out? like the difference is just yeah. that mm. you know, haven't taken one temperature degree. in a long time. <laughs> if you liked this episode of Keeping It Real, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, why don't you have a flick through our past episodes? We'd love to hear your requests for future topics, so send your suggestions through to us on IG at Replastic Surgery. That's all for today and we'll catch you next time for another peek into the world of plastic surgery.